0: On the record.
1: On the record. News Talk. A very good morning it is Sunday the 2nd of December and this is News Talks on the Record Kevin Doyle here filling in for Kieran Cudahy until 1 o'clock today if you want to contact the programme you can send a text to 53106 at a cost of 30 cent and we're also on Twitter at Talk FM lots coming up on the programme Donald Fallon will be here with us for another instalment of Hidden Histories and the Off the Ball team will have all of the weekend sport there is plenty of it to be fair Health Minister Simon Harris will be in studio just after 12 to talk about the big issues. He is in a lot of the newspapers today, so we'll be going through abortion, cervical check, other issues like that. But we're going to start off, as always, with a look at the Sunday newspapers, along with our panel. This morning, we have Dr. Aidan Regan, uh, director of the Jean Monnet Centre of Excellence in New, Pol- New Political Economy of Europe at UCD, and he's also a lecturer in the School of Politics. That is quite a title, Aidan. <laughs> um, we have Grahan Nieda, reporter with the Journal.ie, and Jared Howland, public affairs consultant and Irish Examiner columnist. You're Very welcome to the programme. We'll start by taking a look through the front pages uh, for those that haven't made it down to the shops this morning. Starting with the Sunday Independent, Aer Lingus Chief says staff stealing many millions and this is a story that will probably worry those of us who find ourselves on planes from time to time. Um, but basically, staff in Aer Lingus are going to come under more scrutiny because there are suspicions, or certainly it seems like there's some evidence, that some rogue elements have been stealing from us uh, when we put our bags in the undercarriage and our duty-free, things like that. Um, perhaps a, an even more interesting story, Boom Envy. 3% pay rise on the way next year but there's a catch uh, we're not all getting it uh, it's only going to be for some of us so we'll have a, a look through that the Sunday Times this morning report on Anglo trial collapse to stay confidential this is a report that was completed by the office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement into the collapse of the Sean Fitzpatrick trial it's 235 pages uh, but apparently uh, we're not going to be allowed to see it uh, I think it's the third minister who's actually had that on their desk now but they're deciding not to publish it uh, on the side there Harris Meddling Meddling May delay maternity hospital. That's something we can ask the minister about later when he's in. And there's a story down the bottom of the front of the Sunday Times which caught my eye. Doctors spied on ailing Sir Alex. Two doctors and a senior hospital consultant are being investigated for illegally prying into Sir Alex Ferguson's medical records when he was fighting for his life in hospital during the summer. And you, you just know that's so wrong on so many levels. But you wonder if it was just sitting there, the click of a switch away... Uh, and you're going down the pub with your mates later wouldn't you like to have an idea of what the whole world wanted to know how uh, Sir Alex was at the time so you can understand what happened perhaps uh, even though it is wrong I I will add Uh, the Sunday business post Nocton, Taoiseach got it wrong colleagues want me back at the cabinet table that is former communications minister Dennis Nocton I suppose out defending his record on the back of the Peter Smith broadband report which we saw out this week. Um, I question whether colleagues want him back at the cabinet table because his uh, resignation as it was of course handed Finnegale uh, another seat at the cabinet table and uh, things uh, the, the government doesn't seem to have been too shook by it in the few weeks that have passed uh, the Irish Mail on Sunday fake texts used to swing Fianna Fáil election and this is a story about rows taking place in Kildare County Council and finally the Sunday World Patrick O'Connell exclusive Pringle Bell's shock woman jailed for opening 1 euro 50 box of crisps blasts legal system she gets two more two month term while dealers and pedos walk free but um. i want to start with some of the i suppose the economic and uh the, the the boom envy is this new phrase which the economists seem to be using um it's the second week i think in a row it's appeared on the front of the sunday independent um aiden do you have boom envy
2: uh, no I don't think I do i'm not fully sure I understand what it means is it a Is it a perception that other people are doing better off relative to one'self?
1: It, it means that all your friends are out on Saturday night drinking moe and they're they're going to matches they're planning their ski holiday now for a few weeks' time <laughs> after the big Christmas spend, but actually you're just working sixty hours a week to pay the mortgage. Mm.
2: I think you know it probably does reflect the fact that We do have a very sectorally divided economy. We talk about the economy in aggregate in Ireland all the time as if everything is the same. That's just not the case to certain sectors and firms uh, of the economy that are doing extremely well. I mean, if you think about the ICT sector, if you think about Dublin City, if you think about the tech firms, if you happen to work for one of those companies, uh, I don't think the word austerity has ever featured, whether in the last 5, 10 or 15 years, quite frankly, uh, they've seen percentage increases that are well ahead of the rest of the economy on an annual basis. The terms and conditions of their employment are extremely good. So, And then compare that to somebody who works in retail or in social care or insecurity or catering or even in large parts of the public sector. So in the sense, if that's what's meant that there's people doing better off relative to others, then empirically speaking, that's probably true. Whether it leads to envy, um well, that's that's an open question, I suppose.
1: It's is it is it jealousy maybe more than envy, Jared? I mean it's it's there is this perception out there that there are a lot of people who are back at the top of their game, uh they're driving the big cars again, um and then this Other side, we saw one report during the week about how stressed we all are at work. There does seem to be this two-tier kind of mindset around where the economy is at at the minute.
3: Well, it's unlikely you can be at the top of your game, drinking moe and planning your skiing holiday and not be stressed. Um, I I just think there's a lot of twaddle in in terms of all this terminology. Uh, The reality is uh, most people are struggling in comparison to their own expectations. And I think that's a key caveat. Is that the problem then? Well, we like to we, say, we d- want d- to be back careful. In the Celtic Tiger. I was careful not to say it was the problem. I, I think it is a substantial part <laughs> of a problem. Um, there's another problem of arriving at full employment again, and this is forcing up wages, and we can see that. Uh, the political cycle is now offering increasing tax cuts. Uh, we have a critical shortages in terms of housing, which is cri- so important for people personally, but is also so important for the economy. And these things cannot actually be aligned. You cannot have ever-increasing wages, ever decreasing taxes and ever more houses and infrastructure and economic growth. So in terms of, uh, you know, these headlines, uh, I think we're back to where we were. Uh, just, you know, before the bubble burst the last time round. I was in the bubble the last time round. It was very suddy. It was very enjoyable. There was some moe too, by we the We all way. partied? Uh, well, some people. Is that the difference? We all partied, as uh, Brian Lennon <coughs> once put it, but this time round we're not. Well, to, to put the party thing in perspective, um, people on social welfare payments don't party because no social welfare payment will get you far beyond the bare necessities. At the same time, notwithstanding that unemployment has decreased by two-thirds, our social welfare budget as a whole is at peak levels. Uh, There has been no savings invested in other areas. Partially because we're ageing, so there's a few more pensioners, but partially is because we're reinvesting in a fiver for everyone across the board every time, every year. And these increases in universal payments, which are extremely expensive, which do little for the poorest, which partially benefit people who don't need it all and benefit a little people who don't need it at all, is the sort of politics now to be topped off again by across-the-board tax cuts uh, that I think the uh, Fiscal Advisory Council was pointing to uh, very forcibly during the week.
1: We'll come back to the, the Fiscal Advisory Council in a minute and, and perhaps housing as well, because, Gronje if, if Gerard was, says he was in the last... Uh, Boom uh, party slash well, fest. Than all of you. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Uh, w- without aging people, um, is it an intergenerational thing, uh, Grania? Is is there a difference for young people this time round versus perhaps those that are are more established in their jobs, or in their mortgages, uh, or or in their lives? I suppose
4: um well there's always there going to be a different kind of economic uh, approach I suppose um in terms of age but i just i don't think inequality or a jealousy that some people have more than you is a new thing and i don't think it was it was kind of i suppose the reference to boom envy this time is that some people are back to where they were and other people aren't aren't but there was always an inequality in society so people drinking Moe is always and, and you you don't have that is that's always going to exist is the first point point. and then the, the second thing is it's difficult to It's difficult to measure, like I think that point about uh, what we expect from ourselves and what we expect from life is different. And that's another generational thing. So as a young person, I don't expect to own a house or to have a mortgage, which is possibly uh, different from um, other previous generations. Without
1: going down the Joe Duffy route, how does that make you feel?
4: I mean, it's, it's... not it's kind of like an objective or empirical fact rather than something that makes me feel a certain way. Um, if the renting sector in Ireland improved in terms of uh, kind of a uh, a more stable uh, guarantee or stake in a house, the house that you live, that you could stay there for ten years, twenty years, whatever, then it wouldn't be such a big issue, I don't think. Uh, but there is that kind of part of every Irish person that they want to own land or want to own a house because that's the way it's always been. So um, what but, does
1: what does somebody end up without? saying you yourself, but what does somebody in their mid-twenties, early thirties that doesn't have a house and if you're saying don't now aspire to own that house or or at least don't feel they can, what is the long-term objective then? Because we don't have those 10, 20-year lease arrangements that they have in in other European countries. That's
4: kind of the the idea of, that's part of tackling the housing crisis. Um, of bringing in regulations that give people certainty of um, so that it's it's not just one approach with the housing crisis. It's similar to health. There's not one thing you do and it'll fix everything. So you have to approach it from a kind of a multifaceted way, policy, um, building more houses, and then obviously emergency accommodation as well. Um, and like the policy issues, I, I mean, I don't know if, that, if that's even realistic to ask for, to ask for kind of more regulations, um, but it definitely would help. Um, in
1: on the, the Gerard mentioned the fiscal council there there's a, a good headline on Jer Colloran's piece in the mail today Prudent Pascal now risks becoming disaster Donahue uh, which is fantastically tabloid but there is now this sense that perhaps I, I actually think the fiscal council report during the week didn't get as much coverage as you might have expected it, it was on the front of the papers just about um, a bit of analysis uh, in, in the papers today but What they were saying was kind of terrifying. I mean, essentially, the the policy mistakes of the past are all there again.
2: Yeah, I think um, what was not captured in the commentary on the report and the, the limited commentary that you've alluded to is all of the focus was on spending. All of the, the focus was, well, the government are, are over committed on spending, particularly in healthcare and so forth. But actually, if you read the report, most of the focus was on the volatility of the tax base. And I think that is the crucial variable here that's not discussed. Ireland has always had a very narrow labour income tax base, it's always had a very, very narrow tax revenue base and during the boom times that collapsed after the crisis and the same thing is happening again the government are using taxation to try to build up towards the next election but in particular in the report what they focused on was the volatility of the corporate tax revenue that's what was crucial in their report now what does that mean it basically means that ireland is in many different ways, facilitating corporate tax avoidance and we're creaming off the rents of large multinationals, using those rents effectively to increase discretionary payments, particularly in healthcare budgets. That's not sustainable. No healthy democratic system can generate A good, solid, reliable, sustainable public sector whilst basically creaming off the rents of the corporate tax sector. And I think nobody has called it out like that because that's the kind of subtle diplomatic thing that was being said in that report. But again, in the papers today, it's all about expenditure, expenditure, expenditure.
1: The the, Gerard, the 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 curious thing which has struck me around, if we go back to Leo Varadkar's Ardèche speech where he mm. talked about uh, five years of tax cuts, is the government have done, I think, it's, it's it's a PR kind of masterstroke, which they've done. They have kind of this wild guy, Leo Varadkar, who goes around telling us, tax cuts for everybody, um, and, you know, everything's great, and we'll sort out that housing thing, don't worry about it. And then they've created Pascal Donoghue, or at least Pascal Donoghue maybe has created himself as this prudent guy who actually tells us it'll all be okay, I'm managing the books and can't you tell that I'm very boring and dull and safe and so they managed to play almost the two off each other to convince us that everything's okay
3: well, I'd say there was a bit of bumping off each other because I think fundamentally, politically, what's happened in terms of Irish economic policy over the last few months is that Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach, has, has uh, Pascal Donahue, the Minister of Finance. And I think that's very clear. If you go back several months ago, Pascal Donahue gave a very long lecture at the Michael Collins Institute, which is a sort of semi-attached to Finneguy, do some interesting things. And it was all about holding the centre and it was quite thoughtful. His budgetary policy since uh, did not conform to that very thoughtful outline about what he thought policy should be in pursuit of the sort of society he wanted. I think Pascal Donoghue is thoughtful. I think he's serious. I think he's honest. And I don't believe in in that budget he did what he would have wished.
1: You don't think that was his budget? No. Despite the fact that he went in a roadshow for the guts of two weeks around
3: it? Well, you either roadshow or you resign.
4: I think there's a an and int- he
3: decided not to resign. He decided to roadshow, and that's going to be ultimately very damaging. He's a fantastic
1: actor, if you oh, do. he's
3: fantastic, uh, 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 and he is very plausible. Uh, but but fundamental differences have arisen between what he said and what he did, and uh, they are discernible.
4: I think there's an interesting kind of. Um the, the the role of the finance minister is kind of interesting because they're almost slightly removed from the political process more than any, anyone else at Cabinet. They're an economist maybe a little bit more than they are a politician. But then you're also obviously constantly fighting to stay as Minister for Finance and stay in government. So you have this kind of Leo Varadkar promising all these kind of things and then Pascal Donoghue trying to you know, you know, solve the equation kind of thing at the same time. Um, And I think that is a little bit of, of what we saw. Um, and then secondly, the, like how do you measure how well an economy is doing? It's such a difficult thing to do. Um, GDP has been criticised as a bad and a rough tool, um, inaccurate sometimes, um, for the how well an economy is doing, as is unemployment. Um, if unemployment goes down, is it because people are emigrating? What are the quality of the jobs that people are getting in an economy? Um, are, like, Is it someone who wants to be... Uh, a lawyer or an actor or whatever working in a cafe kind of thing. So how do we kind of go through all of these things and decide this is peak Ireland, Ireland economy? Uh, it's really, really difficult well, to do. i put, I put it, it, it to
1: you that, that there's uh, page 27 of the Sindel. <laughs> there's two articles on it and they're fantastic juxtaposed, I think, because you have Eilish O'Hanlon basically saying, what you just said there, Grania, which is basically that it's not enough to tell people that the is in great shape. They have to feel it. They have to understand it. And then you have Conor Skeetan writing at the top of the page. Now, his main thesis is basically, uh, could we get the IRFU to run the country? Um, and But actually what he's saying, and he's actually referencing something I wrote in the Indo during the week, but we'll, we'll allow him to have his shot at that. But he's basically saying that we're talking about the divide between rural Ireland and urban Ireland and really saying things aren't as bad as some of us are making out, and that we seem to be looking for
2: excuses to beat ourselves up. Well, I think Rania touched on it there, and it's about why and how we measure the things the way we do. It seems to me that Ireland, as a small open economy on the periphery of Britain, engaged in the transatlantic relationship, is using national accounts indicators to describe an economy that might have been a, Applicable in the 1970s. Ireland is a small, open, highly globalised economy. There are winners and losers to the different types of economic growth. A headline figure of 5% economic growth might mean 200% relative wage increase for one group and nothing for somebody else. Plus the fact how we do this in terms of fiscal policy, and that's related to what the whole fiscal prudence thing. I mean, since the crisis, the collapse in the budget, the collapse in, the, in revenue, We've never had a mature conversation in those t- 10 years But what is the optimal tax revenue to income base that we want in this country? What do we want to spend money on in terms of healthcare, education, so forth? Do we want to give priority to social protection, to social investment? So we've not had a physical conversation. 10 years later, we're already getting into a cycle of the Prime Minister, the Taoiseach, base saying let's cut income taxes right, to get re-elected. But, but on That's that point, back to boom-time Fianna Fáil politics.
1: On, on, but on, on that point, when Pascal Donoghue... Uh, talked about these and, and perhaps Gerard says he was acting but when when he said uh, he backed up the Taoiseach's Ardash speech where he said we had to get the €50,000 before you hit the higher rate of tax and his argument was we are this small open relying company on yeah. exactly on the fringes of Brexit Britain and that if we don't start to raise that towards the 50,000, that we lose competitiveness and we will lose all these tech giants that want to come in and
2: employ people here because they won't be able to pay them. And that problem is a function of the fact that we have narrowed our income tax base to a very, very small group of people, right? which means that they carry the heaviest burden of adjustment when it comes to labour income taxes. And they are the core constituency, quite frankly, of Finnegale. So Leo Varadkar is speaking basically to his core constituency, but it's a. Tech, it's not easy in a democracy to have a technocratic conversation about how much of a tax base do we want, how wide do we want to make it, do we want to bring in lower income tax earners, do we want to have three different rates, a low, a middle, a higher rate. Those are very big conversations, which we should have had 10 years ago when the crisis hit. Nobody had that conversation. It was kind of putting out fires everywhere and we've never moved on to have that kind of And, and
3: another thing is, you know, uh, it, 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 we do tax people in the middle very highly by international comparisons. So there is a fair political point in, in relation to people on, on 30 and 40,000 a year. But what people are too polite to say is, is that we don't tax people on very low wages mm. compared to other economies. If we People on 18... 19, 20,000, pay virtually no tax, but in economies that deliver far better levels of public service to people on those wages elsewhere, they are taxed significantly more, in Britain, in Denmark but, in the Netherlands, when you say that here you're some sort of barbarian um, but that's what and, also, and also we haven't mentioned carbon tax we haven't mentioned water charges we haven't uh, mentioned property charges, of which we have a very low anaemic level here and unless we have that mix Uh, we are not going to have services we are not going to have sustainability and we're going to have a much sharper, crueler downturn when it comes than we might have if we were more widely based and this comes back to that Pascal Donahue speech during the summer and the increasing difference between what he said then and what he does now
1: well, I think Aidan says they didn't have that debate in this country. They did. I think it was called the confidence and supply talks and they came up with a mishmash where we'd take those people on the lower incomes out of USC uh, and we'd chip away on both sides. And by
3: the so way, it, the USC it, actually was good. As unpopular as it was, and maybe its unpopularity was a measure of its efficiency. I
2: mean, Ireland is internationally distinct in that both the left and the right compete and try to fight elections and mobilise their core constituency using an anti-tax discourse. Whether you're talking about whether you can... no. Nobody can generate a progressive public policy regime in the absence of having local charges, for example, a local government system that has tax revenue-raising capacity. We don't have local charges. We don't have wealth taxes. We have two rates. You tax the middle income earner more than the rest. So there's, we ha- there's, there's all these different debates that need, to, that need to take place if we are to generate the type of stable revenue we need to have those conversations about what it is that we want for demographic change, housing, healthcare, higher education, research, development, the green tax, everything like that. Okay, I'll just
1: put in for my three percent pay rise and get on with <laughs> it. I think you're listening to News Talks on the record. Kevin Doyle in for Kieran this morning. Now the Euro 2020 draw will be getting underway in a few minutes, so we'll let you know how that goes. What sort of group are the Republic of Ireland going to get in, end up in? Um, possibly more important than the economy for today at least, and we'll have more from our panel in just a minute.
0: On the record,
1: on, on News Talk. Kevin Doyle in for Kieran today on on the record. We're going through the papers with our panel: Aidan Re- Aiden Regan, Gronya Nieda, and Jared Howland. And Gráinne, um some reporting, not a huge amount to be fair, on the thousands who marched through the streets of Dublin yesterday on housing. What exactly was their gripe?
4: Um, well, it's, or where to start? It, the, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like that frustration when I'm talking about not being able to buy a house, and you know, if I have a friend who's about to be evicted from her house. It's kind of like what do you do about that? Other than show your your dissatisfaction, to put it mildly, with the whole process, Um, and we've seen a couple of these now, um, kind of housing movements. It's really interesting, like when you see student bodies printing out posters, you know, take back the city posters and that kind of thing. That it's again part of that wider discourse about energising the younger, the young, the younger generation being energised politically to kind of take stand against this, which, um, which. Manifest itself in the streets, I suppose, as we saw yesterday, and thousands coming out on a Saturday in in the winter. Um, you know, it's it's uh, important, um, but as well, we, we kind of have to make sure that someone listens to that. Well, or I was going to
1: important, Jared But does anybody in government do they worry about uh, a Saturday uh, in? December, having 10,000, if, if that's what there was, people on the streets. Do, do people in, Is Owen Murphy sitting at home this weekend going, it's getting worse, and the pressure is coming on, or is that just another protest?
3: It's just another protest. Uh, I, I doubt there would have been significant worry, and if you are worried by that level of pro- protest per se, you probably need a job other than government. Um, it's a very serious issue, however, which is an entirely different matter. Um, and again, it's this mix between, uh, you know, we get what we deserve. And as a country, we don't actually give a whole lot uh in, in terms of, of, of taxes. And we don't get a whole lot in terms of public investment relative to the uh, countries we want to emulate. And this is a key point. So that if we want significant investment in social housing over G- generations. If we want levels of public investment, uh, you know, comparable to Denmark or, 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 or the Netherlands, uh, we need to be prepared to live in a completely di- different way. And there's little sign that many, including, by the way, those who protest, are prepared.
1: But a piece that caught my eye, uh, Brendan Burgess has a piece in one of the papers this morning, and, and we can talk about paying tax, but there's the flip side to it on the housing one, because he's actually done a good breakdown of how much the government pushes up the price of a newly built house. So, so he's basically saying... That if a buyer pays three hundred and three thousand euro, which wouldn't get you a whole lot in Dublin now, yeah. but outside of the outside the pale you'd get a nice house for that. The developer is getting two hundred and forty thousand, then there's a social housing level of ten thousand, development levy of fifteen thousand, VAT thirty five thousand, uh, and stamp the stamp duty is three thousand. So the government's taking sixty three thousand euro out of that.
2: Yeah, and in an ideal world what we would have from the Department of Finance is a breakdown annually what you pay in tax, what it goes on per itemised expenditure, for example, and you would know precisely if you bought a house how much is going into a housing budget. In an ideal world, the government would mobilise that to make mass public investments in social housing to solve questions of low-income household affordability. So, I mean, yes, the the, the article has a point about how much tax is paid through buying and selling houses and how much goes to government, but as a percentage of the overall revenue, it is smaller. But there's another point, though, on on the housing, on the protest yesterday. I mean, okay it might be the case that this won't impact on Owen Murphy and I don't think it will but I think these type of protests are also about showing solidarity uh, and they're also about mobilising popular support and raising issue and making it a salient issue not that it's not already quite salient and although the protest was framed as one of homelessness in the papers and in the general media, in fact if you were there yesterday talking to people, it was mostly people concerned about housing insecurity uh, and the fact that they can't have any sense of you know, secure future whether it's affordability to purchase, whether in the private rental sector uh, whether it's about low-income households and again I suppose that's the purpose of these protests to have people talking like we are here this morning uh, about this issue whether it's going to solve the problem or not we can talk about that now on mass investment and and it seems to me that the only way to tackle the issue of affordability in Dublin City uh, to have people living in Dublin is the government needs to engage in mass house building again it's that simple Um, and that's a very very difficult conversation to have because who's going to pay for it where's it going to take place not my next door all this kind of thing but ultimately we need to change the line and the discourse around this if we're going to get serious about providing uh, affordable housing for a pretty significant percentage of the population.
3: And by the way, Kevin, if, if you take that 63,000, that is, you know, the government take on, on, on every house, uh, who is going to pay the 63,000? 3,000 otherwise. How is it going to be paid? Is it going to be water charge? Is it going to be property tax? Is it going to be carbon tax? Is it going to be income tax? Uh, I don't see any volunteers in any of these marches for any of those measures. Uh, What uh, I notice about some of these marches is that some of those, not all, but some most prominent were, were most active, for example, in relation to water charges. So I can never take them seriously again. Uh, and I have serious questions about the bona fides of people like so that. Are they who, the,
1: the, as Leo Varadkar once would have described, the, the brigade who want everything for nothing and want to, to pay for nothing? Uh,
3: they are opportunistic people uh, who will lead marches uh, of people who are in desperate situations uh, and they will... Uh, you know, propagate a manipulative politics uh, that actually deepens the distress those people ultimately are in. And uh, there are stronger words, none of which were necessarily appropriate on air.
1: But you, you can't. That's a very broad stroke. Now you're not saying that all of the ten thousand people there no, yesterday I, are I opportunists. Know, there's genuine. I, I, I was referring to. Pe- I no no.
3: If you listen to what I said, I was referring to people who led those marches. Some of them, and I was careful to say only some of them.
1: Gráinne, what strikes me on the intergenerational thing, and, and if you look through the marches yesterday, uh, the this does actually impact almost every generation, because you have young people who want to rent, uh, then you have that people we have some of the highest mortgage interest rates uh, in Europe as well, um, and then I suppose perhaps older people not quite as affected uh, that may have bought in the 70s or 80s or whatever, but um, but I don't think there's any kind of unity between them, is there? In terms of what what do we want and when do we want it?
4: I mean, does there need to be? I I don't think you need to be uh, all have the same objective uh, in terms of this. This is a bad thing. This is affecting me. But do we all need to want the same thing? Other than a change in the housing, how housing is handled, how many houses are built? I mean. I, I wouldn't say that w- that's a problematic thing. I, just, I think that's actually a reflection of how big the problem is and how difficult it is to grapple with, that there's so many different facets that are problematic and that it's affecting every generation and that it seems, even though there are people coming out of emergency accommodation, that rents are still really high and that... uh people are, there's still more people becoming homeless, even though that they're, the government are trying to solve the problem. It seems like every solution or every time uh, a family comes out of emergency accommodation there's more going in so that the solution is just not big enough to deal with the scale of the problem. The there isn't a supply it's not just as simple
1: as supply though Every everyone I mean it is the government can't build houses overnight and we all say supply it can't just be that
2: no I mean that's a very I mean this is what kind of irritates me when I listen to these debates I mean the very supply and demand is a broad macro explanation for pretty much everything and anything so in theory of course if there was sufficient supply of housing to match the demand prices would in theory fall but institutions shape these things in multiple different ways there's so many different variables to impact. You just listed a variety of them in terms of buying a house. So it's not as simple as let's just increase the supply and 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 to match demand. In the long term, that will be the case but what do you mean by supply? What do you mean by housing communities? Where are people going to live? What does affordability mean? Who's af- What's a house is affordable for one group is not the same for another group and so forth? So there's multiple different factors and we could literally spend the next hour talking about those. I'm just going to cut across Aidan, there yeah. because the UEFA Euro 2020 draw is taking
1: place this morning. in The Republic of Ireland, of course, Mick McCarthy back in charge have been grown in group D and uh, we don't have the full group but so far they're in with Switzerland and Denmark um, and <laughs> Denmark, Denmark. Is, our Denmark yeah. is fast becoming a, a, the modern day grudge match of Irish soccer. Uh, we, we'll come back to that in a minute when we know who else. There'll be 10 groups all together and two from each group qualify and then we'll end up I already see us going down a playoff route <laughs> at best. Um but we we'll we'll see who which of the minnows we get because we are the third seed uh so we'll find out who else uh, we where where the travelling fans will be going.
2: Could be a lot worse though.
1: It it could be. We could learn a lot about housing, Jared if we went to Switzerland and Denmark I've got to Copenhagen
2: who produce enough housing, seven hundred thousand people live between the same space as what is between the canals. Yep. And they don't go beyond six stories.
1: The uh, price of beer, though, for the football fan might be what people are a little bit more focused on. Uh, but there is Gerard, coming back to to the the idea of the water protests and those before, could this grow into something bigger? I mean, we'll talk about France uh, a little bit later and what, what's happening over in Paris this weekend. Um, but this is how water charges protests did start. You, you, ha- you are right in that. It started out small and suddenly it, it was, became 5,000, 10,000, and suddenly there was surges of people on the streets on Saturday. And
3: at one level, you know, the water charge thing was not significant because ultimately the amount of money at at, at stake, um, you know, wasn't a be-all and the end-all. But I think it was hugely significant culturally and politically far, far greater than the parameters of the issue itself. And, you know, you often wonder where things start. And I think there is a moment where the issues we are discussing in this conversation actually started. And I think they started, you know, uh, uh, was it the 11th or or, or 12th of December, uh, uh, early December 2013, and the Kennys in the Theatrix office, he gives this very short uh, address to the nation because the Troika is leaving town the next day. Uh, And he says we won't need any more tough budgets. Uh, And he declared victory far too early in terms of what this country needed to do. Um, And I know why he did that, because he wanted to propel momentum uh, and he wanted to encourage people. And, and, and I understand all that he did it for good reasons he, he, he was he was a good man d- doing his best in difficult circumstances but in hindsight that, that that declaration of victory if you like was a mistake it, it disabled effectively uh, many of the measures that needed to be taken subsequently it it had a very cruel uh comeback for him in the 2016 election keep the keep the recovery going because of course a lot of those people particularly outside the M50 in, do, in those rural towns uh didn't feel any recovery, and now you look at Leo Varadkar's, uh, you know, tax cutting p- promises, which are sustainable, by the way, only and uh, technically if absolutely everything keeps fine.
2: Well, the first point to make is that we know from the study of political science and the study of economic history that the perception of or the the perception that a government introduces an unfair tax always leads to social revolt. And it's the perception of the unfair tax that's crucial here. So I think in hindsight, I think lots of people would say, how did the government get it so wrong? How did they go about introducing, you know, the the attempt to introduce a water charge and make it go so catastrophic?" wrong. And I think they just introduced it at the wrong time. People were kind of feeling years of austerity reducing public expenditure public services. There was a sense of anger so it was the straw that broke the camel's back. But ultimately, it doesn't get away from the crucial point that local government is starved of revenue. And if we are serious about having good quality local public services, better footpaths, better roads, better cycle lanes, better infrastructure, there has to be revenue-raising capacity at the local level with serious capacity to implement. And unless you have revenue to do that, you can't basically do anything at all. And that question is still there. Now, that is never going to be answered with a water charge. It does pose the question, though: Is it possible in the future, at some point, whereby somebody could say we? need to have a local charge and with that is the property tax plus some sort of local utility charge and that would then go to a local budget which means you could spend it on this Given what's after happening, I don't I think it will be a long time. And I think that's Jared's point as well, that culturally it's going to be a long time now before we can have that conversation. And I
3: suspect my politics don't align with Aidans at all. But I do if his point is that culturally we are going back, back, back from where we need to be going, I I think he's entirely right. I think
4: it's interesting and, as well that, that when we talk about the popularity of taxes, what gets people onto the streets? When you think water charges quite everyday and tangible and the same with the protests in Paris um, it's kind of it's tax on fuel which is such an everyday thing and such a tangible thing whereas the U.S.C. as unpopular as it is it kind of doesn't resonate as much with people
1: uh, you want more tax policy conversations you stress me out (laughs) 10 minutes on a Sunday morning so I can see why it's difficult for the politicians to do it you are listening to Newstalk's On The Record Kevin Doyle here for Kieran this morning we'll be back in a minute hopefully with the rest of that Euro 2020 draw On
0: On The Record
1: On Newstalk Kevin Doyle here this morning, standing in for Kieran on the Record. We're going through the morning papers with our panel, but first let's bring you an update from the draw for the UEFA Euro 2020 Football Championships. Um, They love to drag these things out, so we already know that in Group D we have Switzerland and Denmark, and wait for it, lads, Georgia again. Um, And I'm just getting Gibraltar have gone into that group, so we could have some sort of weird... Brexit match uh, going on there. So, not sure. That's not the best group in the world, I think. It's not the worst either. It's not. It's kind of middle of the road kind of territory. What's a lot more interesting, perhaps, is Group C, uh, because we have Germany and the Netherlands gone in together and put on top of them, and you have to have some sympathy, Northern Ireland uh, gone into Group C there. So that's, we, we, we'll go through sport uh, with off the ball in the next hour and we'll get all the connotations. Um, there are 10 groups altogether, the top two qualify from each, and then there's four extra places through the playoffs. So pretty much half of all the teams in there. Will qualify, but it's a very complicated system that they have come up for how all of that happens. But we'll try and we'll try and explain it uh, in more detail in the next hour. Speaking of complicated systems uh, and trying to to understand it, uh, Brexit and the U- UK politics, um, the latest row. Uh, seems to be over the legal advice, Gráinne, uh, that the British government have got in terms of how the backstop could work. Uh, Tim Shipman in the Sunday Times, I think it's on the front of the UK edition, it's on, on page two here, uh, has some insight into what that legal advice says. Can you give us a, a clue since everybody in the uh, UK House of Commons seems so desperate to find out?
4: Yeah, so basically the Attorney General wrote a letter to ministers saying this is the legal implications of what the three brought back from Brussels. And obviously the backstop was hugely controversial so they and a lot of claims were made about it um about whether it's indefinite about whether the uk can unilaterally pull out of the backstop um and whatever custom arrangement they decide with the eu and basically the attorney general's advice is that the protocol would be would endure indefinitely i love the word endure in that description um and that space and that is going to Really annoy Brexit and it's going to it's going to make Theresa May's uh, deal very difficult to push through the House of Commons. Now, the Attorney General is meant to talk to the House of Commons tomorrow and tell them what his ex- give a summary basically of his advice. And apparently, according to these reports, he's going to water it down significantly, as will the summary that. 10 Downing Street publish on that legal advice The tradition is that the Attorney
1: General's advice and it's the same here isn't public it's not made public it's legal documents it's legal advice and in any court case I suppose you don't generally give that sort of information now we had something similar on the abortion legislation here where there was a row over whether or not the Attorney General's advice ahead of the referendum and they gave us a watered down version of it Uh, but I think this might become a little bit uh, bigger than that because uh, the Labour Party's Shadow Secretary of State for Brexit Kirstarmer was on Sky News this morning with Sophie Ridge. And here's a little bit of what he had
0: to say. Do the right thing. You've been ordered to produce this advice. Just produce it. If they don't produce it tomorrow, then uh, we will start contempt proceedings. This will be a collision course between the government um, and parliament. Now, as I say, I don't want to go down this path. With nine days to go before this vote, we shouldn't be uh, dealing with contempt of parliament. But at the moment, for the government to say on the one hand, we're not going to vote against the order being made, and then to turn around, if it does turn around tomorrow and say, but we're not going to comply with the order, is to get themselves into really deep water. Would, you like,
4: would you like there to be a second referendum?
0: I would like to have something far better than we've got at the moment. This deal is a bad deal, and, and, and frankly, to have got to a situation where at the end so of would, the would, would a
4: second referendum be far better than where we are at the minute, then?
0: Well, we'll have to see when we get there, but it's far better than this deal. Um, here we are, but almost at the end of the negotiating period with a deal which is, it looks as though it's not going to get the confidence of Parliament. That is a huge failure, and the Prime Minister's run the clock down. So if we get to a question of a public vote, if we get to a question of a referendum, it'll be because the option of a deal that I think could have been negotiated has been taken off the table by the Prime Minister.
1: I'd like lots of things for Christmas, and I think one of them would be for Brexit to be done and dusted and the deal to to be finalised, Aidan. It doesn't sound, uh, listening to Keir Starmer there, that we're getting anywhere closer to to Theresa May's tour, if you like, of the UK, including her stop in Belfast this week. It's having no impact at all, is it? Things are actually getting worse for her.
2: Yeah, well, like, I mean, the Labour Party want an election. That's fairly obvious. So they would rather pull the plug, have an election uh, and be in the driver's seat to kind of shape what the next process would be. But ultimately, um, I don't think the EU is going to budge on what's on the table. The withdrawal agreement is the withdrawal agreement. Um, and, you know, countries may get a true parliament? It looks highly unlikely at this stage. Um, and yes, she's gone around britain um or the, sorry more precisely around england um trying to sell this which also could be her building up towards an election so maybe she also anticipates an election coming through but it seems to me that this particular piece of legal advice Um, the issue and the argument seems to revolve around the question as to whether or not Britain would remain in a permanent customs union as part of that backstop. I think that's fairly obvious from reading the text. Britain is on course now, if this goes through, to remain in a permanent customs union. From an Irish perspective, from the EU's perspective, that's obviously a good thing. So it's not a conspiracy from the hard Brexiteers to say this is not a good thing from, from their perspective because it means that they're going to be basically nothing changes, that they have... There's no influence. The only thing that changes is that they're outside the club um, and maybe they can get something on the immigration thing. But then there's these other part of the story which is pushing for a Norway plus style deal. So people have different interests here and um yeah to answer your question directly this is definitely not going to be solved uh this side of Christmas.
1: I think the key thing Jared that came through there, he talked about Theresa May running down the clock and the clock has run mm. down. There isn't time to go back and come up with Norway plus plus plus. There isn't time for a general election. Um, there isn't really time for anything. So she is
3: kind of right when she says it's this deal or no deal, isn't she? Yes. And, um, you know, the, the university's minister is the latest uh, resigner f- from government over this. And he had a very good line, you know, Britain loses its vote, loses its voice and loses its veto. Uh, but essentially remains in, uh, as Aidan said, because this is Customs Union by another name, at least indefinitely. Uh, from our perspective, by the way, I, I, you know, it, it's it's problematic because you're never sure where it's going to end up. There's going to be an awful lot of uncertainty for a very long time, but it's the least worst outcome.
1: It's a strange, the TV debate that's going But coming. it's
3: disastrous politically for Britain from every conceivable perspective. And that's why the Brothers Johnson can agree on this
1: it is that bizarre thing where we're going to now have a TV debate growing where we have a woman who is the Prime Minister who was Remain arguing for leave with this deal and then you have on the flip side Jeremy Corbyn who, well, he's not quite sure what he is even at this stage or what well, his party he's represents.
3: He's a hardline Brexit. Either. He is, but he's not sure That's what his party spade, represents. Spade, yeah. um, but
4: then also trying to oppose Theresa May by saying, you know, by saying he's, he's not quite for Brexit either. Like, it's just kind of, diff- this is the whole the whole futility of this is just really difficult to wrap your head around. You have Threesome May touring the UK for what? The people she needs to convince her in Westminster. Then you have this TV debate to show the p- public again, which won't have a say in whether the vote goes through the House of Commons or not. I mean, it, it's kind of, it's its a like, like, a like Brexit comedy is. sketch. Mm, yeah. It's a comedy sketch. It, like it, it does lend itself to a question and, and, and
1: in the bigger picture, because Britain is eating itself, if you like, mm. Um, but as you look across Europe, and it, there's a lot of coverage in the papers today, particularly around what's happening in Paris this weekend, Aidan, um, and Dan O'Brien has a good piece talking about the the new extremism. It's not this old, kind of the old extremism was almost authoritarian, you, you blocked out everything else, you cancelled elections, um, and you just ruled. But this new kind of right-wing populism that's rising doesn't have a problem with elections. It'll go and win those elections by convincing people. Um, and, and you do wonder, you look at Angela Merkel stepping away uh, in Germany, you look at what's happening in Poland, in Hungary, in Austria. Um, we maybe are a little bit more insulated from this uh, than we realise, but there is a movement.
2: Yeah no there is I mean it depending on the country you want to look at I mean in Italy would be the best example perhaps in current polls the Lega, the Lega will used to be in the Lega Nord uh, will, will get a majority around about 38% it's not that different in Austria on average countries in Western Europe in particular radical nativist nationalist right parties are are really about 15% that might not sound like a lot but it does mean they are in a position to shape coalition politics and they shape the dynamics of what's happening in parliament and it also becomes a case of the tail that wags the dog the centre right parties then try to start responding to their narrative and discourse and all of a sudden you have a general kind of anti-im immigrant sentiment emerging. That's before we even talk about Eastern, Central Europe, whereby in Poland and Hungary you have basically nationalist right parties in government. The, the Viktor Orban one fascinates me because
1: I was in Helsinki mm. recently for the European People's Party. This is the, the group of European parties of which Fine Gael is a member. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is Angela Merkel's mm-hmm. Christian Democrats. And Leo Varadkar, Angela Merkel and, and several other of the European leaders sitting on stage beside Viktor Orban. And it just looked bizarre. And when they're asked about it, they say, oh, well, he's the enfant terrible. It's better to have him
2: in the house where you can (coughs) see what he's doing than outside. I think this week is a very sad week for Hungary. It's a very sad week for Europe and it's um, due to the fact that the Central European University has had to move out of Budapest and move towards Vienna and Austria. And in a sense, that is shame on the European People's Party because uh, Hungary, is uh, the Fidesz, are part of that. They give him legitimacy. If they provide him the legitimacy, and I think they're, they're thinking, they're calculating that better to have him in the club because if he's outside, he might be in a position to mobilise the, the far right everywhere else because he has that charisma and so forth. But quite frankly, it's probably more to do with the supply chains of foreign direct investment within Europe Germany has a lot of investment in Hungary. Uh, the, 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 the German Chamber of Commerce within Hungary is actually quite supportive of Fidesz. He basically gives them what they want, 10% corporate tax rate, very flexible labour market, huge investment of vocational training, science, technology, mathematics. So he's doing all those economic things that the German business wants. Mm, it, it's... it's fasc- George, France.
1: Um- the the Macron thing has really died away very, very quickly, hasn't
3: it? Yeah, and if you look at, uh, you know, Emmanuel Macron's great speech uh, on a couple of Sundays ago, the 100th anniversary of the, the armistice, when he tried to separate nationalism and patriotism, uh, and I understand what he's trying to do. George Orwell has, has a very good uh, essay uh, uh, using precisely those terms but essentially if you look back over the generation uh, since the fall of the Berlin Wall and it's it's interesting that George Bush senior is now dead and lying in state this this, this weekend but that sort of globalization uh, and underpinned by if you like a political metropolitanism uh It hasn't worked. It has failed. And these are the increasing failures of all of that that came from the fall of of the wall afterwards. The hubris, I think, uh, and over triumphalism that uh, associates itself with much of us and that people on the ground in communities uh, end up voting for Brexit. End up voting for Trump. End up turning out of the Champs Elysees and other places in these yellow high vis jackets because they do not feel connected with. What What did you make of the growing?
4: I think it's really interesting. it it just it's quite jarring really when i mean we could talk about there's a lot of interesting pieces about the france uh, paris riots in in the papers but the pictures are actually so striking there's one in the it's Archive like something film. from le Mis. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's it's
1: the barriers are up and it's the,
4: it's like something from a film or from as it, i think a lot of macron himself described as like from something from a war which is quite uh, dramatic but there's pictures of people in high vis vests cars on fire firefighters putting out fires a restaurant Went on fire. I mean, it's just it. It's um. It's kind of it shows the frustration, I suppose, of the French people more than anything. But I think it was interesting when Macron first came to power. They said that this was only kind of the first stage of a victory. He beat Le Pen and other competitors. But the thing was, depending on how his rule, his term in office went, it could either uh, lead the way to the to, to the the alt-right, say, another Le Pen, Marine Le Pen to come forward because there would be so much anger with his policies and that, that was the one worry people had when he did come to power and it seems to have come to pass in a way well, or think, will come to pass. I think,
3: Kevin, there's one thing we know not to do and that is to repeat phrases again uh, that was much used here a few years ago. The nihilist left, I think, was Pat Rabbit's favourite slogan. Uh, Hillary Clinton referred to contemptibles mm. because this sort of language, this sort of cosmopolitan Macron and his disc, thugs. of mm. this state if, if, you, if you like uh, for these protest movements will not help actually heal the rift that has caused them in the first place But it's, so worth, it's,
2: it, but it's worth noting the material base of this and it's related to Colin McCarthy's piece on climate action, climate change. These protests emerged because Macron tried to introduce a fuel tax charge on the cost of petrol effectively this then led to a social revolt which ultimately has grown into a broad popular pote- protest against Macron and his economic policies. But again it's back to that point when a government tries to introduce a new tax that's perceived as being arbitrary or unfair, what you get is social revolt and Macron didn't, I think he has acknowledged that he didn't go about it the right way. Okay, we'll have to leave that there. My thanks to our panel, Dr Aidan Regan Director of the G.
1: Monet Centre of Excellence in the New Political Economy of Europe at UCD, Grania Niéda Reporter with the Journal.E and Gerard Howland, Irish Examiner, Columnist Public Affairs Consultant and former Senior Political Advisor but speaking of Europe, just before we go to the news headlines the draw for the group stages of euro 2020 have just taken place the republic of ireland have been drawn in group d and they're in with switzerland and denmark and georgia all familiar uh to us from recent years of football and gibraltar in there at the bottom as the the bottom seed team uh the top two from each group qualify with four then getting through through playoffs and we can already see that road uh stretching out in front of us but some other groups of interest for you group a England Czech Republic Bulgaria Montenegro and Kosovo mm. um, Group C this is a particularly interesting one I think Netherlands Germany Northern Ireland Estonia and Belarus uh, and Group D again just Switzerland Denmark Republic of Ireland Georgia and Gibraltar we'll be back with lots more in just a minute
0: On the Record
1: On, On Talk.